Once again, I do not have a passage that I would like you to turn to because we're going to be quickly looking through a variety of different passages this morning. We are in the eighth part of this series, Essentials of the Faith. Last Sunday, I had said we were in the sixth part of it, but there ended up being two sixth parts just because of the... Uh, the breakdown in the last few weeks, and I didn't realize this. So last week was the seventh part, even though you didn't realize it. And this morning we are into the eighth part, and we're going to jump immediately into it. It is the third essential of the faith that we've been looking at. So we looked at the adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. And we took four or five weeks looking at that, and then we've begun to look at the actual statement of faith that we have, the essential statement of the faith. And we are on the third one this morning. This is, as I said last week, the essential, essential, because it speaks of Jesus Christ. This is not going to be an exhaustive treatment of this essential, but simply a reminder, and a sense, a joint affirmation of this truth that unites us and which we joyfully will proclaim about Jesus Christ. This is the statement of faith. This is the essential, the third one that we're going to be looking at this morning. We affirm There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work and substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. That is a massive statement. We looked at the first third of that last week. One Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior God, manifest in the flesh. And as a review, there is only one Lord. The first word of that. One Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no means of salvation. There is no means of reconciliation between God and man except Jesus Christ. One Lord. He is Lord. That is, he is master and controller and commander of all things. He created all things. All things belong to him and are for his glory. He is Lord. He is Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus means the salvation of Jehovah God. He is salvation. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah, our Savior. He is our Savior, that it is It is personal. He is not just the Savior of the world in the cosmic sense, but by grace through faith in Him, you and I can individually be saved. We can have confidence in His work of salvation personally. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is not a demigod or a lesser God. He is the full expression of the invisible triune God. One Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh. There is a wealth of information in that. Suffice to say, though, that this is true, and we affirm it to be so, and we rest our lives upon it. This morning, I would like to look at a few more words in this essential statement of the faith. The first third describes the person of Christ, his character, and the latter two-thirds speak truths of him, or as far as facts that we would ascribe to him or that the Word of God ascribes as being about him. As I said last week, the first portion, the first third, could be seen as the who about Jesus Christ, and the latter two-thirds is the what about him. Now, I'm going to mix it up a bit because I actually don't like the way that it is written 
just in the order within our doctrinal statement. The doctrinal statement reads in this way after the very beginning. It says, His virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work, and substitutionary death, and his personal return and power and glory. So, virgin birth, sinless human life, and divine miracles are truths from his life, or we would say truths from before the cross. The divide is the death and resurrection, following which we see his ascension, mediatorial work, and his personal return and glory. But within the doctrinal statement, they've actually placed substitutionary death in the after the cross portion. I'm not really sure why they've done it. There is a sense in which it is rightly placed as the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is present tense for the one who is trusting in Jesus Christ. But practically speaking, or pragmatically speaking, it is past. He has died for our sins. So we will include that truth, his substitutionary death, in the truths of Jesus Christ, which are past and are a part of part and parcel of his work on earth. And may not matter this morning anyways, because I suspect we're not going to get to it. <laughs> So this morning we will look briefly at the truth of Christ's virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, and his substitutionary death. And my hope is to clearly present proof for these truth claims from the Word of God, and then to provide reasoning why each truth is an essential item of the faith. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm telling you now what I'm going to do. We're going to look at those four things. And we're going to establish that they are true from the Word of God, and then we're going to examine why or provide reasoning why it matters. And why is it essential to the faith? This may come across, unfortunately, as dry or even redundant. But before you write me off as old news, I want to remind you that every single one of these things that we are looking at is essential. If you were to deny any one of them, you would be denying the person and work of Jesus Christ. He cannot be our Savior if he was not born of a virgin. For otherwise, he would have the same fallen sin nature as we have, and thus would be unable to pay the penalty for our sins. His own couldn't be paid for either, which would be passed on to that fallen human nature if he was not born of a virgin. Without living a sinless human life, which is the second one, he would not have been the perfect sacrifice able to satisfy the just demands of God the Father. Without his divine miracles, we would denigrate him to being no different than any other human being. He would not be the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, as we saw last week, if he was unable to operate within the divine. Without his substitutionary death, we would still be without a Savior and would be punished eternally because of our our rebellion against God. So these may seem like mundane or routine statements of the faith, but they are in fact vital. So the first one is, we affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth is necessary because this was a promised sign from God. This is what would herald the coming, not just of a baby, but of Emmanuel, God with us. A regular birth, as miraculous as that may seem, is not truly miraculous. It is not beyond the scope of the laws that God has established. It falls within them. But a child to be born without the seed of man is an impossibility. In human terms, it is nonsensical. And yet God promised that this would be the sign of the coming of Emmanuel. That prophecy from Isaiah is repeated in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. But Matthew goes on in describing this miraculous event. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. This is how it happened. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This is actually what took place. This is a recording of exactly what took place. Before they came together, before Mary and Joseph came together, that is, before they consummated their marriage, before they had sex, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So it was promised by God as a sign of his coming that a woman would become pregnant without the seed of man. Then we have the actual event where Mary becomes pregnant with a child of the Holy Ghost. Mary doesn't understand what is taking place or how this can be, and she asks the angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That Holy One is to be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit would cause the child to be conceived in the womb of Mary. The power of the highest will overshadow her, it says. The angel says that God would create life within her. And notice it says, after this pronouncement, therefore also that Holy One will be called the Son of God. Because of the virgin birth, the child was formed within Mary by the Holy Spirit. Because of that work of God, the one who will be born will be the Son of God. Essentially, it is saying that because God conceived this child, Christ would be God's son, not Mary and Joseph's son. The virgin birth. We have here the miraculous uniting of God with human form. Christ was fully man and fully God. He was born of the seed of woman, but not of the seed of man. He was without the sin nature that is passed down through Adam. I don't know how that worked. We cannot deduce that to some scientific explanation or equation. But we can trust that what God has said is true. We can trust that if God created all things that are, it was no challenge for him to create life within the womb without the involvement of a man. We can trust that if God made Adam from the dust of the ground, that he can create the body of Christ within Mary. We can trust that if God can make Eve from the rib of Adam, he can fashion a body for Christ within the seed of Mary. John Piper has said this, and it's very well said, It is an unfathomable mystery that all the fullness of deity should dwell in Jesus. It is fitting, indeed necessary, I think, that the entrance gate to this mystery of incarnation should be the virgin birth. It's a mystery. It's a marvel. It's a wonder. It is God at work. We affirm the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We affirm Christ's sinless human life. Just as the virgin birth was necessary, the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ is also necessary. In the virgin birth, we see Christ untainted by the fallen sinful nature that, that is, he was without inherent sin. And in his sinless perfection, we see that he was without practical sin. He is and was innocent and blameless. No sin can be charged to Jesus Christ. Now, the Word of God declares this 
many times. I'll just give you a few. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18-19 Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 2, 21-24 For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Second Corinthians 5.21 But he, that is God the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, speaking of Jesus Christ. He knew no sin. It became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First John 3.5 And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The fact of the sinless life, the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ, cannot be denied if we accept the truth of the word of God. If this is inspired of God, as we have already affirmed it is, then Christ committed no sin, either of commission or of omission, not in thought, not in word, not in attitude, not in deed, not in anything. Did Christ sin? There was no sin found in him. He was perfect. He was holy. But notice those last two references I gave you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and that was he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. Both of those statements make the connect between the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and our need of a Savior. Our sin is what separates us from God. We are born in rebellion against God. We are guilty of inherent sin and actual sin. And the penalty for sin is death. That is both physical and spiritual or eternal. The penalty for sin is death. Your death will satisfy the just judgment of God against you if you do not trust in Jesus Christ. It will not please him because he does not delight in the death of non-believers. But it will satisfy the just demand. The price will be paid, but you will be dead and separated from him eternally. In grace and mercy, God determined to make guilty sinners innocent. And for God to accomplish that and not be unjust, someone had to pay the punishment of death that we deserve. Another guilty party cannot bear my punishment as they are already sentenced. An innocent party, a perfect party, a right party, a sinless one, was the only one who could intervene to pay 
my punishment of sin. The only innocent party who could take my place is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. We affirm the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. This is a vital doctrine. For if Christ had sinned, he would not be worthy to be a sacrifice for sinners. The means of God declaring this guilty sinner innocent is the innocent lamb of God being declared guilty in my place. My sin was imputed, we use that word, to him. That is, it was applied to him. He bore my judgment in the crucifixion. Now by grace through faith, the righteousness that he has, the sinlessness that is of him, has been imputed to the one who believes. It has been imputed to me by grace through faith. That is, his sinlessness is credited to my account. And if you have trusted him, you've been declared righteous, then his sinlessness is credited to your account, just as your sinfulness has been credited to him. In the blood of Jesus Christ, this believing sinner is declared not guilty. In the blood of Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, I am absolved. You are absolved of all crime, of all sin in Jesus Christ. And thus we can be granted life. Thus we have been redeemed. We've been bought back by God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We affirm the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. For it is true and it is absolutely necessary. We affirm Christ's divine miracles. Now perhaps we would agree that this one is not as vital as Christ's sinless human life. Is it possible to gain everlasting life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ without believing that he performed all the miracles that the word of God tells us he performed? Yes. Yet we affirm these to be true and still to be of great relevance because it is true and it is relevant. As a matter of fact, it is to our detriment that we downplay or ignore the miracles Christ performed. And if we ignore the greatest miracle that Jesus Christ accomplished, you cannot be saved. Because that is the greatest miracle that Jesus Christ accomplished, his resurrection from the dead. That is a miraculous work of God. And if it is not true, then we are still in our sin. If it is not true, we are of all men most pitiable, the word of God tells us. The resurrection is not true. But setting aside the miracle of the resurrection, what about all the rest of them? Do you realize how often Christ worked a miracle? These are incidences where Christ accomplished something contrary to nature. He accomplished something that is humanly impossible. He who created all things and set all things in order contravened order to accomplish his purpose. That's what a miracle is, basically. Without doing an in-depth analysis of this, I discovered that there are at least 30 times, at least 30 different miracles that Jesus Christ accomplished. Some of them you'll be very familiar with, some of them you won't. I'll just read off a couple here. The very first miracle that Jesus accomplished, you'll all know, turned water into wine. But after that, healed a nobleman's son, healed a leper, raised a widow's son from the dead, calmed a storm, cured a paralytic, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, healed the woman with the issue of blood, opened the eyes of two blind men, loosed the tongue of a mute man, restored a withered hand, fed 5,000, set the demon-possessed man free, cursed the fig tree, raised Lazarus, healed the high priest's servant's ear, freed a woman oppressed for 18 years, gave sight to a blind man. On and on and on it goes, at least 30, 30 plus times. Incident after incident. As a matter of fact, the miracles were such a regular occurrence that there was no doubt that Jesus was a miracle worker. Even those who didn't like him acknowledged that he worked miracles. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
They, they knew full well that he was accomplishing miraculous things. They questioned his authority or what authority he did it in. They even said, I think we're, that you're in league with Satan. That's how you're accomplishing these. But they didn't actually doubt miraculous intervention. Jesus was known as a miracle worker. But what is the purpose and why is it necessary to affirm these miracles apart from the fact that we're, fo- we're told that they're true within the word of God? We get a couple of hints as to their relevance. There's several different places or accounts where there is reason given. But the first explanation for the miracles comes from the first miracle Christ performed, the turning water into wine. After that record of the miracle, which is interesting all and of itself, uh, you should take some time to read it. It's interesting because there's so much proof within it that it was a miracle. Uh, Christ didn't touch the water. He didn't touch the barrels. He had the servants fill them. It says the servants filled them to the brim. Just little words like that. Well, why to the brim? Why does it include that? Well, it's because if he hadn't filled it to the brim, maybe he could have put something that was extra potent in there and made it come out looking like wine. But it was the servants who did it. It was the servants who brought the barrels. It was the servants who filled them with water. They filled them right up to the brim. The servants are told after to draw some out and give to the master. It's not as if Christ or even his disciples were able to substitute something there. They take it and he gives it to the master and the master tastes it and immediately knows that something out of the laws of nature are at work. And the master acknowledges that it is good wine or it is the best wine. And he would have known what good wine was from bad wine. There is no doubt this was a miracle and not an act or a deception. But back to what was said after the miracle. In John chapter 2 verse 11, it says this, right after the miracle is recorded. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I see three things in that one statement. The first is that the miracle was a sign. The miracle manifested or rendered apparent Christ's glory is the second thing. And the third is that the disciples believed in him. The word rendered sign there in the New King James is accurate. It has been translated variously as signs, miracles, or wonders. But signs is most accurate. If we look at them as a supernatural event simply, we could consider them just being unexplained events outside of our ability to reason. But it isn't just an unexplained event, and it isn't just outside of the ordinary. The miracles Christ performed were signs of his authority. They were signs of his power. They were signs that he was from God. That is abundantly clear, because Christ challenges the Jews at least five times that I could find with a statement like this from John chapter 10. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. At least five different times that I could find, Jesus says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe what I'm doing, that I work the works of the Father, that the only way I am able to do these is because I have come from the Father. They were a sign. The miracles were definitely and clearly a sign of who Jesus Christ was. A sign that he was from God. They were a sign that the kingdom of God was at hand. They gave witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Peter, or sorry, Christ stated that. Peter also stated that after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. They were a sign. The miracles revealed 
or displayed who Jesus was. They were also a witness to Christ's glory. So first they were signs. Secondly, the miracles revealed Christ's glory. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we all know this verse. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How did they, and subsequently how do we, behold His glory? Well, it's simple. We actually see His divinity. We see His deity. We see that He is God. How? What he said and what he did. We behold his glory. We see his, if I can make up a word, his supernaturalness. That he isn't natural, that he isn't human, that he is God in the flesh. We see that in the miracles of Jesus Christ. In the complete authority and power and sovereign rule of Jesus Christ, performing miracles. That is one way in which his glory is displayed. The glory as of the only one from God. We see Christ as God in the flesh. In one way through his miracles. Thirdly from that passage in John. After the miracle of turning water into wine. We see that the disciples believed. That does not mean that they then came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't want us to be confused with that. Otherwise we would think that we have to see a miracle before we could trust him. This means that their faith was confirmed. Prior to this. Prior to the beginning of the miracles of Jesus Christ, they had believed in Christ because of at least two things. The witness of John, who said, this Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And they had believed because of the voice of the Father, who at his baptism said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But now they see a manifestation which declares the divinity, the deity, the the sovereignty, the power, the authority of Jesus Christ. And their faith is confirmed within them. They believed in Jesus Christ. Not that miracles are necessary for belief, but every time we see God work, in the ordinary or in the extraordinary, we should have our faith bolstered. It should be built. We should have more and more and greater levels of confidence in Jesus Christ. Now, there is much more that could be said about the miracles that Christ performed, but I'm going to leave it to just one more note. In the miracles of Christ, we see the certainty of future blessing. Every miracle he performed looked forward to the completion of our salvation. That moment when all will be reconciled in Jesus Christ. That moment when this body will be made incorruptible. When this mortal will be made immortal. I honestly believe that if you look at every single physical healing miracle that Jesus performed, it looked forward to that moment. And we have that promise in Jesus Christ, don't we? It tells us very, very clearly. He will make all things new, even this body, and it will be perfect. So every healing that has ever taken place is a miracle. We look forward to when this body is resurrected. We ask that God would accomplish that miracle in us today. And he may say yes, and he may say no, because he has a sovereign plan through that. But that prayer will be answered one day to all those who are in Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of miracles, the the performance of miracles, I don't like the term performance, the accomplishment of miracles through Jesus Christ looks forward to that miracle of our resurrection. That's just on the physical plane. What about on the, uh, the earthly plane? 
what is some, okay, so he fed 5,000 at one point, he fed 4,000 at another point. What does that look forward to? The reconciliation of all things, where God will fully provide everything that is necessary in a very tangible, physical, actual way. That we will have not a single need or care eternally. It's going to be fulfilled when all things are made new. What about the calming of the storm? That's an incredible miracle. Did you know that eternally there's not going to be storms anymore? I don't know how that's going to work. But God is going to reconcile all things to himself. And so there... The calm that he spoke to the storm, Jesus Christ is going to speak to our lives eternally. That we will know peace and calm with no storm of any kind, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it might be. This is what is confirmed for us. This is a confidence that we have because we look back and we see Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And to intervene or to contravene the laws of order that he put in place is not a difficult task for him because he is the one who created all things. He is sovereign over all things. There is coming a day when all will be made right. The broken course that we walk will be made straight. Every sin will be destroyed. God will make all things new, free from even the slightest taint of evil. The miracles of Jesus Christ on earth are a foreshadowing of a miracle of complete restoration. And so we rejoice in what Jesus Christ did, and we look forward to what he has yet to do. We affirm Christ's divine miracles. I'm going to leave it there today. I had every intention of looking at Christ's substitutionary death, but I do not want to lose you on it, and it's not a minor point of theology. So what I will attempt to do is next week look at Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and his bodily resurrection. So we're going to be extending this one point from a three-part miniseries now into a four-part miniseries around one essential statement of faith. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is central. It is central to the Word of God. It is central to us. It is central. It is imperative for us to understand and to proclaim there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. So if in any essential statement of the faith we must pay attention and be transformed by, it is by the person of Jesus Christ. We affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifests in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles. Christ was born of a virgin. It is by this means God became flesh, yet without fallen sinful nature. It is an absolute and necessary truth, for it is God's righteous means of providing the Lamb of God who could and would die for the sins of the world. Christ lived a sinless human life. This is an absolute and necessary truth, for it is God's means of declaring sinners righteous through the sacrifice of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ. Christ performed many divine miracles. This is an absolute and necessary truth, for it was, it was God's means of declaring the authority, power, and deity of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Christ gave witness to whom he was, revealed his glory as the only begotten of God, and established the faith of the disciples and even us today. It also gives us confident assurance that all the promises of God are ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent God the Son and Jesus Christ that you came willingly, 
We thank you that these truths contained within your word and upon which our salvation rests are true. We thank you it is not contingent upon whether we believe them or not. We do believe them because they are true. Lord, I ask that you would make that clear in our mind, that these certain, unchanging, immutable facts would resonate through our lives. Forgive us for cowardice in speaking them. Forgive us for lack of boldness. Forgive us for being hesitant to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Forgive us for being soft on some of these truths that maybe we think are secondary or not as important, but which are vital. Lord, make us into ambassadors of Jesus Christ who declare the whole counsel of God, particularly as it pertains to the person of Jesus Christ. And we ask as well that as we do so, our lives would be more and more conformed to your image, that we would look like you, would be transformed to be like you, so that when the world hears us, when the world sees us, they would see Jesus Christ. And may an awakening come within our families, within our friends, within our sphere of influence, within all those who are within earshot of us or who can observe our lives as they see Jesus Christ alive and active and powerfully at work in his children. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.